Do you really, really, really love Jesus? You know, some of you uh, did not grow up in this area. You moved to this area, and you uh, started looking at churches. You maybe went church shopping, and there were things on your list that you looked for, and you chose certain church, uh, our church, for any number of reasons. But you know, Jesus looks among churches as well. And there are certain things that he's looking for. This seven-week series we call calibrate, which is a rather technical term. But to calibrate something is to bring something into an alignment with a standard. Here's the standard. Here's what needs to be set right. Jesus, in his prophecy that he gives to Apostle John at the end of the first century, initially uh, presents his revelation to John, and then he, John is to pass that revelation on to the seven churches that are found in Asia Minor. Here's a map that you can see where Asia Minor is, and it's coming. It's what we know as Turkey today. They're in rather close proximity to one another, and each of those churches are different kinds of churches, just like in our area, there are different kinds of churches that are very similar in some ways and different in other ways. And we're going to find that Jesus has some positive things to say about these churches. And most of them, he has some things that he's very concerned about, even like today's church as well. And in the first chapter of Revelation, this is what we read in verse, verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance, that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These letters inform us what Jesus wants to see in a church. Because after all, isn't that what we should care about most? Not how we determine is what we determine makes a good church or a healthy church or a lively church. But what does God say? What is Jesus? What's his assessment of the church? That's why these words are so critically important to us. Now, when we read these letters, they can be viewed in three ways. They can be viewed prophetically. There are those who th believe that these letters are prophetic statement about the ages of the church, stages of church development. If that's true, then some would say the first one we're looking at today, the church of Ephesus, represents the church from the day of Pentecost in 33 AD until 100 AD. These letters can be viewed practically. Uh, they, these are literal churches who really existed in the first century, and yet they sp still speak into church life today. They can also be viewed personally because, because since church is people, the body of Christ, there's application to us in our individual growth with Jesus Christ. 
So before we get into this first letter, let's learn about the place. Let's learn about Ephesus. It, it was an important city. It was a, a major city. Uh, some have suggested that by the end of the first century, there were as many as 250,000 people who lived in the city of Ephesus. Um, it, 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 was, uh, it, it was on the Castor River. It had a magnificent harbor into which uh, ships from the known world uh, came to deliver its goods and, and brought wealth. In fact, it was an extremely uh, wealthy city. Some suggest the wealthiest city in all of Asia Minor. It was also an important city politically. It was, of course, under the rule of the Roman Empire. And because the city and its leaders had served Rome well, they were called a free city. That is, they could self-govern. And there was, that was not typical in the Roman Empire. And this was a uh, place where you would not find a Roman garrison because it is a free city. It was also an important city religiously. You'd find there on the Acropolis nearby, the temple of Artemis, um, uh, the goddess. She's also known as Diana. I prefer Artemis since I don't want to apply, well, my wife could take Diana and apply goddess and then we'd be in trouble in our marriage probably or something. So I'll use Artemis. This temple was used as a bank at times. It was used as a museum of fine art. It was also a temple uh, where criminals would flee to for refuge. Um, it, it was also a place where you'd find a thousand temple prostitutes that would apply their bodies in religious worship of this goddess. Ephesus was a wicked, degenerate place to live. Heraclitus wrote, No one could live in Ephesus without weeping over the immorality which he must see on every side. It was to this city that Paul traveled to plant the church. He must have been struck by the brilliance of the city. He must have been struck by the evil of the city. It was here that he spent two years uh, with the people. We have an Acts, his departure his words to the elders of the church of Ephesus. There was much weeping when they parted because of the deep, intense relationships that had been formed there. By the time John writes this letter, the church is 45 to 50 years old. And uh, it was here that John the Apostle lived for a time. And tradition says that Mary, because John was to take care of Mary, the mother of Jesus, she died there and was buried there also. This was an active church that lived in this place in a wicked hour of its history. And God was using them as a testimony in the midst of this evil. What a great place for a church to be. And Jesus Christ writes a letter to this church at the end of the first century, sometime, somehow in the ninth, probably around 96 A.D., the Apostle John is elderly at this time. He's the oldest living apostle. He's been exiled to Patmos, and there he has this vision, and he has the initial recipients of this revelation of Jesus Christ. And as is in the case of the other churches, he begins with praise for the church. And so this, this is what he says. He, he praises them for their diligence. 
In the midst of this pagan culture, they've done well in many areas. It says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. The Ephesus church were busy people. (laughs) They were serving people. They were active. There were lots of ministries going on. Maybe, maybe we would compare it to our church where there's a lot of ministries going on. There's a lot of things happening. He uses this term hard work. That, that, that word, some versions say uh, labor. It really comes from a word that means beating, which suggests that their service was toilsome. It was demanding of them. It was costing them something. They were intense and intent at their work. This was not just a Sunday morning crowd. This was not a Christmas and Easter crowd. These people were working hard for the sake of the gospel. Now sometimes, of course, we know that you can be working hard, you can be busy and wear yourself out. Maybe that's what Jesus sees. I like that little poem that says, Mary had a little lamb. It would have been a sheep, but failed at setting boundaries and died from lack of sleep. Maybe that's defined you sometime in your life, that you have spent yourself, you've run yourself ragged. So this church is a diligent church. They're also a a church that's sound in doctrine. Jesus says to them, I know you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. In other words, you don't let just anybody teach. See, at this particular time in church history, the New Testament hasn't even come together yet. That's a whole process that that, that, that the, the letters that were circulating went through to test them to see if they have the ring of truth, if they agree with all of Scripture. There are just lots of ways that scholars through the years have determined what, what comprises the New Testament. 27 books come together to make to make this New Testament that we say. There were many false doctrines, so false documents claiming to be from the Lord. Um, they were, they're called pseudepigrapha or false writings. Uh, there were also traveling itinerant preachers. They were jealous for notoriety, and so they would claim to be apostles, and so they would be tested. The Ephesian church was a great church at testing these and, and, and making sure that they are true representatives of God. And Jesus is proud of them that they don't swallow up just anything that comes. And it's a warning to all of us. Just because somebody or some, some evangelist or something you read attaches Jesus' name to it does not mean it is true. And that's why we have to know the scriptures and to determine, does this have the ring of truth? There's something about here, something about this is not right. He mentions also in the text those Nicolaitans. Now, we don't know exactly who those are. I can assure you it's not a mixture of strawberry, chocolate, and vanilla ice cream. Nicolaitan, Neapolitan, never mind. Um, Nicolaitans. Uh, the, the, the word Nicolaitans means to conquer people. You have, you have Nico at the beginning, to conquer, and laet, laet, see the L-A-I-T, L-A-Laet, that's where we get the word laity, the people. So some have suggested that the Nicolaitans initiated a church hierarchy. 
where there's a, a difference between clergy and laity instead of espousing the priesthood of all believers. But when we look at the church at Pergam, which, Pergamum, which we're going to do next Sunday, um, he talks more about the Nicolaitans and we get deeper clues into who they are, which has to do probably with leading people into some level of immorality while also embracing the gospel, which of course cannot happen. So whatever it was, they were not putting up with the, with the Nicolaitans and what they, the, what they were suggesting. These evidently wanted the best of both worlds. And third was their discipline. They lived a disciplined life. They were carrying the load of the gospel. They were enduring affliction. There was much persecution in this time. There were, there were people being cut off because of the, of, the, of the guilds that people had to be a part of in the marketplace. And if you did not say that Caesar is Lord, then you, you, you couldn't be a part of the guild. It would affect your business, your livelihood. You'd lose your business. Or you'd lose your support for your family. This church was steadfast in the face. They, they, they served, they worked for the Lord. Now, I hope when Jesus looks at our church, he sees the same thing. I hope when we go these three days, when he sees our diligence, that we serve the Lord, that, that we, we love sound doctrine, we're serious about sound doctrine, we want to know the word, that we live disciplined life. I hope when he sees us, he would make the same claim about us. But he's got a problem with the Ephesian church. I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. You know, falling in love is kind of a misnomer, isn't it? Nobody falls in love. You, you fall in a hole. <laughs> and you don't fall out of love. You know, you, you fall out of tree, you know. But I remember uh, asking Diana out on a date. And our first date was to a Chinese restaurant in Cincinnati, Ohio, and a Reds ball game. And when I came back, I called Todd Dillon, our worship leader. I knew him you know, that many years ago, 40 years ago. And I said, I just took out the girl I'm going to marry. And I called my parents. I just took out the girl I'm going to marry. And you might think, sounds like falling in love to me. No, I was looking for a long time. I was watching waiting for her to dump the lug she was dating so I could move in for the kill. And she did. We, when we're in love, something happens to us. And now, re remember, we heard, we heard, read Ephesians 3 this morning. That's a letter, another letter that the Ephesian church received, not by Jesus directly, but by the Apostle Paul, inspired by God, breathed into Paul to write the church. And you remember a part of Paul's prayer? I pray that you will know the vastness of Christ's love. I want you to know all the dimensions, a high, wide, deep is the love of God through Jesus Christ. Now that was some... 30, 40, 40 years earlier. Now, evidently, Paul's prayer was answered. This many decades later, when they get this letter from Jesus, you've lost your first love. It's a scary letter to me because our church has a history. 
It won't be long. Next year, 19, we will celebrate 190, 180, 190, 190 years of being in existence. Is that right? Can that be? Yes. 11 years away from a 200th anniversary. All studies show that the longer a church exists, the more it wanes in vitality and effectiveness. It happens to people as well. That the, the longer we walk with Christ, my fear is we become so used to all the things that church looks like that we can forget our first love. That's what Jesus is saying here. You've existed long enough, Ephesian church, and you've done all so many things right in church, but do you love me? Are you passionate about me? Here's some, here's some, some indicators of first love. First love is exclusive. You know, you can date a lot of people. No, it's fun to date a lot of people. That's how you try to figure out who you want to marry, Right? And so you date several people, and then you land. And when you land, things change. You stop texting people of the opposite gender. You stop certain emails. You stop flirting. You hone in on one person to give your devotion to, and you don't risk losing that relationship by fooling around with people of the other gender. You don't do that. You stop doing that. And what happens over time with believers that we're not careful, we get so, we get so enraptured by the grace of God, instead of it calling us to deeper levels of purity, we start abusing grace by allowing things in that are inappropriate, whether it comes by behavior or speech or language or relationship or, or a, a, a heart that is unforgiving, that holds grudges, or a gossiping or gossiping lips, or we're just not careful. And it ma- makes me have to ask myself, if people saw me, no matter where I am doing anything, would they not be surprised to know I'm a Christ follower? What would they say of you? That's what first love is like. It's exciting, first love. There's nothing dull about first love. It's true in human relationships. It's true also in our relationship with Jesus. Now, there are many people in our lives that have a hard time thinking about becoming a Christian because when you're talking to somebody about being a Christian, you know, one of the first things they want to come up with is, well, what do I have to give up? What's it going to cost me? And so they think, if I have to give up that way, there's no way I can live and not do that. There's no way that I could find pleasure in my life if I can't do that anymore. Now, of course, the best way to remedy that is get them acquainted with Jesus and introduce them. Get them acquainted with him and watch what he does to bring a higher level of excitement than the world can ever offer. It's not like puppy love. It's not like infatuation. You know, it's, it's when, when you're excited... Even when you love, you know, you do stupid things. When you're excited about first love, don't you? You do things that are risky. You do things that maybe are not sensible. Diana was staying at somebody else's house when I was with my parents when we were in college. And I was, I was just really excited. And so I backed the car out through the garage door. <laughs> my dad's car, not mine. So I was glad for that. 
Um, you know, you, you, do, you do silly things in your eagerness to be with or to, or, to, or to be renewed and to see each other again. You know, does that describe you in your walk with Christ? That doesn't mean necessarily it's spine tingling. It's deeper than that. But there is a deep abiding joy and exhilaration, excitement from being together. It's also expectant. You know, first love dreams. It anticipates. It plans. It hopes. Dating starts like that, right? You gals do not know how hard it is to be a man (laughs) and to ask girls out on dates. We set ourselves up to be rejected. Now, Diana won't say I'm right, but I am. You know, early on, before that first date, I asked her in 1976 to go with me to a Letterman concert. And I said, many of us are going. I'd like you to go with me. She said, no. I have this scar in my heart. (laughs) It's still very tender, still to this day, 40 years later, you know. Her version is, he said, bunch of us are going to Letterman concert. You want to go along? I still think I'm right, but. You know, re, re, um, the, the, the beautiful thing in first love is it's, it's, it's filled with expectancy. Waiting for the phone call. Waiting to go out again. <laughs> looking forward to the next time we were together. Uh, looking forward to being home. Uh, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, remember, love always hopes. That's one of the beautiful things when you're in love with Jesus. No matter what your week looked like this week, you may look back over your week and think, I was not a very good Christian this week. I hope nobody finds out. Today is a new day in him, and you can start over today. There's great hope When you're in love with Jesus Christ, even in trials, even in the worst seasons of our lives, we live with the expectation that he's always up to something good. That's a wonderful joy in the Lord. And first love is expensive. It costs. Dates are expensive. And, you know, I can remember saying to Diana, where do you want to go? Hoping she says McDonald's. You know, maybe she would and wouldn't. But you know, when you're in love, you splurge. She's bought things for me that, and spent money on me she shouldn't have spent because she loves me. That's what love does. When you love Jesus, it costs. That's why he said, if you, if you want to come after me, you have to deny yourself. You can't, you can't have a first love and hold on to yourself. First love calls you to lay down self. It's out of love. It's not forced. It's not obligatory. It just happens out of the person that you meet. That's why it's expensive. It, it, it costs you something. It costs you your life, your time, your service, your energy, giving up what you want for the sake of the person in your life. And so it is with Jesus. And so... Have have you lost your zeal, your flame for Jesus today? And I now now I I think you're here, 
because you love Plainfield Christian Church, but that's not what I'm asking you. Yeah, I, I, I know you're here because perhaps you love um, how worship is done here. But that's not what I'm asking you. You may love it here because your kids or grandkids can be in a great place and the children serve. That's not what I'm asking you. What Jesus is asking us is, do you still have your first love? Do you remember that? Jesus, you remember, was on the seashore at Galilee and his men were out in the boat fishing. This is after the resurrection and they look and they see this guy on the beach. And somebody finally says, well, it's the Lord. And they get there and there is Jesus cooking breakfast for them on the beach. Boy, what does that taste like when Jesus cooks your meal, right? <laughs> and so he pulls Peter aside and he says, Peter, do you love me more than these? Now, we're not sure who these are. Some say these refers to the other disciples. Do you love me more than these other guys? Or some suggest he's saying, do you love me more than these boats of yours and nets and fishing lines? Well, whatever he was saying, it was all about the depth of Peter's love. And so now I'm going to, out of the Greek language, I'm not going to go into all the Greek, but basically paraphrase loosely, this is what he's saying. Peter, do you 100% love me? And Peter responds, Lord, you know I 50% love you. Jesus pauses at Peter. Do you 100% love me? Oh, you know I 50% love you. And then Jesus says, Peter, do you even 50% love me? Take care of my sheep. And of course he does. Would Jesus put a percentage on your love for him today? My love? Reduce Christianity to the least common denominator. It's to love Jesus with all our heart, soul, mind, strength, right? So what do we do? Prescription. Jesus gives. He says, he says in the text first, remember, remember. Do you remember how you first felt? Even if you grew up in the church, even if you have to think about it. I mean, I was 10 years old when I was baptized into Jesus, but I remember the excitement of my parents. I remember church leaders hugging me. I remember that new Bible I had because I'd been baptized into Christ. I remember going home and reading my Bible that night. I remember the next morning reading my Bible the next morning. I don't know how long that happened, but somewhere it stopped before I regained it later on. Now, maybe you were an adult when you came to Jesus Christ. And you had friends and relatives there, and you felt so good to be clean and free from shame and disgust and all the past things that were going to be held against you anymore. Have you remembered lately what that's like to be rescued from all that and be made new? Jesus says, you got to keep going back to remember it. And we do fail to remember it. We get caught up in so many things and opinions and ideas and we get, we get so predictable in our faith and there's nothing new and fresh and lively. The second thing Jesus says is repent. Repentance is not only for first-time believers, but for all of us. It's actually a lifestyle for believers. We live a life of repentance. We live a life of always turning more toward Jesus Christ. Has Jesus become just simply a convenient person in your life? Has he become a nice addition 
Is he simply a basis for morality in your life? Something you do because it's right or you'd feel too guilty not to be around church people or not to be going to a worship service. Sadly, we allow so much to trump our relationship with Jesus Christ. We let family come in. We have obligations. We let... We let work responsibilities come in, and what happens? He is the one, and what he expects of us to be set aside. And somehow we'll work out our rationale for it. Well, he knows I love him. Jesus said, if you love me, what do we do? Do what he says. If you love me, he says, keep my commandments. Keep my commandments. Maybe you've been sliding away. Maybe you can't remember the last time you felt passionate about Jesus, really in love with him. Has anything moved you lately about him? And repeat, he says, repeat. Do what you did at first. Remember those early. What was the best time in your Christian walk? What was the best time for you? Can you think of any season other than now that you're in that you are more alive in him than you are right now? Perhaps it's a first love issue that needs to be dealt with. So go back. Maybe you got to go back and just establish a good devotional pattern. Maybe you have to go back and re-energize your prayer life. Maybe you have to go back to saying, you know, I need to be with a group of people studying the Word. I need a life group. Or, you know, that's our way of doing it. Listen, if you want to get to Starbucks on a Tuesday afternoon at 3 o'clock with three other friends and you'd rather do it that way, do it that way. Just be in the Word with a group of people. We need that. We need community. We all do to grow in Jesus Christ. You know, the, 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 good, the, the good news is, is if any of us have gotten sloppy, and we all get sloppy. I have gotten sloppy. I have confessed to you before in past messages that have been seasons of my ministry. I've been in the ministry, you know, 40 years now. There have been seasons where I have loved the ministry more than Jesus. His ministry was more on the throne of my heart. Why? Because I love being with people. I love doing what ministers do. But see, I think it's a, it's a real great problem for us preachers because we love what we do and our doing can trump being who Jesus wants us to be. I've had to repent more than once about that. I've been so prideful in the past with doctrine, sound doctrine. You know, your doctrine can be as straight as a gun barrel and you can be just as cold as well at the same time. Now, I'm not saying sound doctrine is not important. Hear me right. Just say, just because you got sound doctrine doesn't mean your heart's alive in the Lord, right? It can be cold and you can be boring and you can be flat in your faith. And you can have this righteous indignation that you have it right. You know what's best. Your opinion is what people should follow. Be dead inside in all that. While all that may be true. There's good news. The seventh verse says, Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That's the good news. Now, this great temple to Artemis, 
was pretty fascinating. And in this temple was also the, the god Nike, or we say Nike, which means victory or overcome. That's why we like to wear Nikes, right? So that's what that God's name means. Jesus says here, look, you can be a conqueror. You can be a victor. You hear the Ephesian church is hearing that. They know exactly what he's referring to. It's about, it's about me, he's saying. And also in this temple, in this, the temple to Artemis was a garden. And in that garden was a tree that they said Artemis, they say Artemis this god, goddess, was born at that tree. And these criminals I told you that would run to the, 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 the temple to Artemis uh, and find refuge, that's where they would go to. They'd go to that tree and, and clutch it, and when they were there, they would be free from prosecution. That's why the city had so many evil people in it, criminals. Now, we remember the tree of life, don't we? It was in the Garden of Eden, and man ate from that tree of life. There was nothing to keep him from it. But an evil one stepped in, and we believed him, and we became criminals. We became the rebels. We became the one who came under prosecution. Now, Jesus says at the end of Revelation... That tree of life is going to be in heaven. Just read chapters 21 and 22. And we're going to eat from that tree of life forever and ever. And the only way we can get there is run to another tree, Calvary's tree. And by clutching in that tree, the tree of all trees, we are free. And that's why these emblems are so valuable to us. We love the bread and the cup. Because here reminded of Calvary's cross the cross on which Jesus died, that we may have life. And so let's worship him and let's tell him as we remember him how much we love him.